Hi, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi. Hey, Guthrie. And uh, we have a couple of very special guests today. We do. I'm really excited. I've been wanting to uh, talk to these guys again because I did talk to them once on the phone, but it was a while ago for a long time. So we have Steve Solomon, who's a professor of cognitive science at Brown University, and Phil Fernbach, who's a professor um, at the Leeds School of Business at University of Colorado. So first, hi guys and welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. So you guys wrote a book, and that I, I, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to start with the book, although I bet there's other things you want to talk about besides the book as well. But you wrote a book called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, right? And it's been out for a couple of years, right? It's fairly recent, but not brand new. Right. So um, I really, I, I love this book. And uh, I have all kinds of things I want to talk to you about the book. Is it okay with you if we start with the book and then we can talk about well, you know, what, what else you guys have been working on? You are the boss, Susan. I'm the are. boss. All right. All right. So the book is about, I'll give you my two-second blurb on what I think the book is about. And then you can tell me. No, that's not what the book is about. Yeah, so I think the book is about the idea that as humans, we tend to think we know a lot about stuff, but actually we don't know a lot about stuff. But the fact that we think we do changes our thought process and changes our behavior. Well, the book is is like a Rorschach test, you know, and how you describe it is very <laughs> revealing about how you understand. Uh oh, uh oh. So, uh, what would you, so so, Doctor, uh, do you want to uh, talk about what my interpretation of the book says about my personality? Well, I, I I'm I'm a little worried that you doubt other people's intelligence. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to talk about that because that's probably true. And that makes me look like a bad person. All right. How would you describe the book? What's your Rorschach test? Well, what you said is definitely one of the big themes of the book, for sure. Um, The Knowledge Illusion is the main title of the book. Um, One thing that you didn't mention is the subtitle of the book, Why We Never Think Alone. And that's um, sort of the second half of the story of the book which is about how, well, individuals don't know very much. Um, We reside in communities that know quite a lot. And human beings are really designed for a collaborative kind of knowledge storage. Each of us knows a little bit, and together we can know quite a lot. And so there's some really um, important and interesting ideas around the implications of the fact that knowledge is stored in our communities rather than within our own heads. Um, that uh, is is also a major part of the story of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, and I think as you were talking, and I was thinking about it, I think I do tend to be quite the cynic in general. Guthrie will back me up on that. Yeah, probably. I'm a you know I'm a glass half full kind of person, and so yeah, even in the community part, 
you know, I start to go towards, yeah, and see, we, uh, we still have a not clear view of reality because we can, we just perpetuate each other's illusions, right? So, um, I don't know, maybe you guys can have a more optimistic view of that community part than I do. Do you want to well, talk guess, about I that? Phil and I are a bit of a community too, and I think I generally play your role. <laughs> um, you know, our book was reviewed in the New Yorker, and the author there um, made the point that one interpretation of what so so one of the basic phenomena that we discuss in the book is the fact that people get this sense of understanding just by virtue of the sense of understanding of the people around them. So, you know, if your friends all think they understand why Democrats are criminals, then you're going to think you understand why Democrats are criminals, even if you have no particular information about it. Um, and the problem is that your friends might think that they understand why Democrats are criminals because the people around them think that they understand and the people around them think that they understand because the people around them think that they so you see where this so the you can get this sense of understanding in this community that is a house of cards that's based on nothing right that um has no fundamental understanding um uh, beneath it and I, and yes i think that you know that's absolutely true and that's the nature of so much ideology but look it's it's important to understand that that's also the nature of so much science right it's also the nature of so so many things we do understand and and basically all human achievement we depend on others for not only our sense of understanding but for our actual understanding so it's it's sort of a fact about life that's what makes us humans um and that's the very positive part generally but it certainly has this negative and sometimes very scary consequence. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that um, representation. It's, it's a real double-edged sword. I mean, if you think about it, our ability as human beings to align around complicated ideas and complicated goals um, when none of us individually can, can know enough to sort of understand the whole thing is probably the most remarkable achievement of human beings and what allows us to do these really incredible things. But it also has this dark side, which is that because we don't, not as individuals, understand everything in depth and we can't, um, that it can lead us to some pretty uh, dangerous and dark places uh, because it means that individuals can kind of come to believe things that uh, that are are uh, that that are incorrect, you know, that are pretty easily falsifiable if we did if 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 we were able to like you know do some careful research. So you're saying there's a there's a good. I mean, first of all, I think what you're saying is, hey, this is just the way we are. This is just the way we work. Uh, our brains work. There's this connection between you know, our, the cognitive science, or how, how people think, and this sense of community and the, just being part of a social community. Like that's just, those two things go together. You can't break them apart. That's just not who we are, 
to break them apart. And then that has, you know, positive benefits, but also can lead us into, you know, our own individual and community cognitive biases. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question whether that's just who we are, uh, you know, whether it's sort of fixed in the firmament or uh, whether we can be different. So in the book, we definitely argue that's who we are. And, and I do fundamentally believe it. You know, I, I believe this is what um, hunter-gatherers were like when they you know, existed in tribes and supported one another. And there was a distribution of labor and a distribution of cognitive labor, and they worked together as an entity. And I think it's true today. I mean, you just have to look at any ideological group. Um, look at the amount of conspiracy theorizing that's going on today, right? I mean, there people believe things that that are are incredible. I mean, they have no evidence, you know, no grounding, and yet there are entire huge communities in this country that believe these things. And, and so, yes, it's the way people are. That said, here we are having this conversation about it. And the fact that we're able to converse about it means that we can sort of treat it as an object of thought. And if we can treat it as an object of thought, then presumably we could do something about it. We can understand it and we can change it. Um, that sounds so, very optimistic for you. Well, yeah, I mean, look, think about the history of science or the history of philosophy, right? I mean, think about the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period in which humanity realized that they could evaluate their beliefs. They could bring some kind of you know, criteria, logical criteria, scientific criteria to bear to decide if what they believed was true or not. And hence science was born. So there's a sense in which we do have these institutions and one hopes the Supreme Court is one of those institutions um, that doesn't allow uh, beliefs that have no grounding uh, to take over and determine, um, you know, the, the course of things. Hmm. As opposed to most of human history, when there were institutions to make sh sure that beliefs that had grounding had no, uh, no way <laughs> to infiltrate society. <laughs> did, well, I, know, did I mention that Guthrie's a licensed attorney in the state of Illinois? Uh, I think we're we're hearing the law part coming out here. <laughs> the world does have a habit of intervening uh, over time, right? Like if you have completely incorrect beliefs about the world, uh, you know, eventually those things are often proven wrong. So uh, I guess the you know what the hope is that our institutions sort of accelerate that process because sometimes. Uh, it can be too slow, and you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. Hmm. All right, I I want to uh, I want to 
go back and there's some things in the book I'd like to just ask you about. Um, so at the, very early on in the book, you give a number of examples of, if, if we go back to the individuals and their own illusions of knowledge, uh, you know, before you, in the book, before you start talking about communities, um, you give some great examples of the kinds of research and the kinds of questions that have been done that get at this whole thing of, of uh, the illusion of knowledge. So I'm wondering if you can just walk us through those. For instance, um, one of my favorite ones is the zipper. Go for it, Phil. Yeah. Well, um, there, it's, it's easy to come up with examples because we experience this illusion of understanding for just about everything. And um, the, the original studies were done by a group led by a psychologist named Frank Kyle out of Yale in the 1990s. And uh, he, he studied um, sort of common household everyday objects uh, like the zipper. My favorite example is the toilet. And in these studies, um, people are asked whether they understand how these things work. And if you ask somebody, do you understand how a zipper works? They sort of nod their head and say, yeah, I know how a zipper works. I have a pretty good idea of that. Um, but then in the next uh, phase of the study, uh, what we're going to do is ask you to explain in detail um, in the nitty gritty exactly how it works. And um, what happens uh, when people try to do that is, is pretty remarkable. People find that they really have trouble explaining in detail these things. They really don't have a lot of detailed knowledge about the mechanism of how things work. Um, and so that's the, the basic phenomenon uh, called, uh, in, in the uh, cognitive science jargon, the illusion of explanatory depth. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, uh, I've used some of these ideas here. We, we teach workshops and various things, and I've used some of these examples um, as you know, interactions in some of our workshops to, to bring this point home. And then you, you I, I think the research finds that then, it, you know, if you ask people to rate how much do they know, you know, about how a toilet works or how a zipper works, initially they rate it, their knowledge pretty high. Then when you ask them to explain, they, do they typically lower that rating? Yeah, most people typically lower that rating. Yeah. There are, there are a group of people, people that we can call reflective don't lower the rating because their rating is low from the beginning. Ah, okay. There are people who are aware of how little they, they understand. Presumably, because when you ask them how well they understand, they sort of go through this implicit explanatory process by themselves when they generate. The oh, so before they answer how well they know, they kind of try and think, wait a minute, do I really know how a toilet works? Exactly. Exactly. Do you think it's because people just want to appear smart? And it's just something that, yeah, everyone knows how that works. I don't want to be the type of person who doesn't know how a toilet works. So I'm just going to nod and say yes. I, I, I don't know. Or do you think they... I, yeah, I, I'm going to, my guess is, no, they really think they know. They're not trying to appear smart. What do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, I share your intuition, Susan. Um, People really seem to be surprised when they engage in this explanation attempt. They go, whoa, I thought I knew that. 
And that's a pretty common sort of response. Now, you know, you always have some kind of presentation biases and experiments that could potentially explain some things. But my sense is with this particular phenomenon that uh, people really are surprised by, 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 uh, by their lack of knowledge about these things. Yeah. Um, and if you've experienced this, and you know, I, I do this all the time now. Um, I experience, I still experience the illusion of explanatory depth. I've, I've gotten a little bit better about being more reflective and sort of asking myself, do I understand this before getting really confident about it? But I still find all the time that something that I thought was relatively simple is actually much more complicated than I thought at first. And I, I experienced that kind of phenomenology of, whoa, I thought I knew that. And it's still, it happens to me all the time. So I, I don't think it's just about uh, people wanting to appear smart. Because you talk about, yeah, go ahead. Here are a couple of tests that, that your listeners can try at home. Okay. Um, one is to draw a bicycle, right? So a bicycle is a pretty simple mechanism. It's a pretty simple causal system that's actually entirely visible. Um, and most people have the sense that they understand how a bicycle works. Well, sit down and try to draw one, draw the mechanism and uh, see if you get it right. Because most people don't. In fact, most people, even people who are regular cyclists, um, tend not to draw the bicycle that they, they imagine they can draw. So that, that's one example you can try at home. Here's another. Um, think about a social policy or political policy that you feel very strongly about. Like if you're pro-Obamacare or anti-Obamacare. And then try to explain how Obamacare works, what it is and how it leads to consequences what all the components are of, of this policy and see how well you really understand it. Yeah. And it's really complicated. It's really complicated. <laughs> so, I mean, in the book, you talk about the fact that we tend to ignore complexity. So what, what's going, you know, why do we just think things are simpler than they really are? Yeah, it's not that we ignore, it's that we don't appreciate it, right? Okay. Like, we see things at this superficial level. It's like what, the way we see people, right? We see people in these superficial terms, we stick an adjective or two on them, and we think we know them. But, of course, everything has this sort of fractal quality. The closer you look, the more complexity there is. Um, so why do we not appreciate that complexity all the time? Well, I, I think if we did, we wouldn't be able to function. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have to just sort of go with what we have, go with what we understand, or we would constantly be looking for this, you know, this structure, these levels of detail, the nuance that would make us dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. So along with that, or I mean, maybe it's not connected, but um, I've always been fascinated by why we're so attached or interested in making causal connections of information. And I know you guys talk about that in the book. And I've thought about that before. And I know we do, right? Give, give us information and we're already, you know, Make connecting the dots, whether there are dots to connect or not. 
So is that also, do you think, part of this just uh, uh, shortcut uh, to deal with complexity is to try and make these causal connections? Or do you think there's another reason we do that? You're going to jump on this, Phil? Go, go ahead. I, I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so so I can understand your question in two different ways. One is this kind of deep philosophical question about what causality really is, right? And so one view is that causality doesn't really exist. This is sort of Immanuel Kant's view of things, that it's rather something that human beings bring to the table. We understand cause and effect because we impose cause and effect on the world. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the sun doesn't really cause water to evaporate. It's rather that there is sun and there's energy moving around and part of that whole big story is that water evaporates, but there's no actual causality. And of course, you know, what, what you believe about that depends on what you think causality is. So if that's the question you're asking, then yes, causality is a way for us to just simplify. But another what, question you might be asking is, why is it simply that we try to understand the reasons for things? Um, why is it that we understand, try to understand the origins of things and what changes occurred in the past that lead to the present state and how can we predict the future based on the present state? And I think the answer to that question is uh, that's what it means to be an organism in the world. It's to understand, it's to be, it's to try to understand how the world works so that you can make it conform as best you can to your own needs. And if that weren't true, if that wasn't the kind of organism you were, then you would no longer exist, right? Because that's what's required for organisms to exist. We have to understand our environment and try to control our environment. So in that sense, thought, our ability to think, is really just an extension of our ability to act in the world in ways that um, that are adaptive, in ways that serve our own needs. So causality on that view is sort of serves as the, I'd like to say, the infrastructure of thought, right? The system by which we think, because it's the most useful thing available to us. Uh, can I give you an idea, and you can let me know if you agree or disagree. Uh, evolution often doesn't make the best system. It generally turns out that you get really, really, really good systems that are kind of good enough. Um, but if you were an engineer, you could maybe sit down and come out with something more efficient. So humans love to use heuristics for all sorts of stuff, both physical heuristics. So like when you go to catch a baseball... Uh, humans don't calculate the trajectory of the ball from the bat and the humidity in the air and then step where it's going to be. All you have to do is put your hand up and as long as the ball is between 
you know, your mitt and your eyes, you're in good place. If the ball is higher than your mitt, you need to run backwards. If the ball is underneath your mitt, you need to run forwards. And so it's this sort of heuristic that we have to cheat to judge the, um, the trajectory of an object without actually having to calculate it. And in the same way, um, if you think of heuristics behind uh, maybe po being poisoned. So we're in our hunter-gatherer days. You know, there are certain things that are bright colors or stripes, and if we eat them, bad things happen. And we don't understand the true causality or the true, you know, that there are chemicals that are reacting with our body. We, we've evolved to have these very cheap and easy to calculate kind of cheap and dirty heuristics, bright colors, stripes, maybe stay away from those. And so the causality develops because of the heuristic that, that we're using to try and avoid uh, being poisoned. Um, so do you think that some of the reasons that we're so bad with causality or that we jump to stuff is just because evolutionarily, that's sort of all we needed to do was Oh, berries red. Maybe stay away from that. Um, I, okay, I'll say a couple things. I, I'm not sure um, I agree completely with your characterization that causal reasoning is is bad. I actually think that that's what people are really good at. It's an incredibly difficult thing. It's sort of like. Um, you know, try to get a computer to make the correct inference about the causal structure of a bunch of like like thousands of correlated variables. It's very, very difficult. Human beings have a kind of common sense when it comes to causality that um, is, is really impressive. Now, we sometimes make mistakes and we overinterpret and so on. Um, but uh, but I, I don't think it's right to to say that we're, we're bad at it. Like we Steve and I have always argued that causal reasoning is sort of the most natural kind of reasoning that human beings engage in. The, the second thing I want to say is that I don't think of causal reasoning as being like a heuristic. Um, a heuristic is a simple, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a rule of thumb or, 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 a, or a shortcut um, to solve a very specific kind of problem. And heuristics, as you point out, uh, you might not go through the full sort of normative calculation of a problem, but you have some shortcut that gets you there most of the time. And heuristics usually work well in the context in which they evolved. Um, causal reasoning is more of a, a of a general purpose tool that we have, um, and I would say that causal reasoning is more elaborate than a simple heuristic. Um, when we engage in reasoning about whether something is poisonous or or so on, um, human beings don't necessarily just say like, if this thing has stripes, don't eat it. Right? What we do more is we try to understand something about the underlying line causality um, that gives us a little bit more power to be a little more adaptive um, in terms of the way that we make decisions. So that if we observed uh, a, a stripy plant that didn't have some of the characteristics of something poisonous, maybe we actually could take advantage of it or something like that. I'm not sure I'm being totally uh, coherent here, but the point is that causal reasoning is, is this more, as Steve said, the infrastructure of thought. It's this more general, um, uh, uh, machinery that we have for drawing inferences, um, as opposed to being uh, a, a heuristic, a simple uh, trick. 
I don't know. Steve, do you agree can with I, what? Can I, put, get a word? Can I um, add my two cents here? I mean, I actually think you're both right. So I do think, you know, causal, causal reasoning is there's a very powerful set of tools we have for understanding the world. And, you know, when we deploy them correctly, they're amazing tools and they can be unbelievably accurate, like in the case of a lot of physics. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't use heuristics. I think we use heuristics all the time. And that's Guthrie's absolutely correct about that. And indeed, we have a, a whole chapter of the book where we go through the kinds of examples that um, Guthrie discussed. I think we even talk about catching a ball, right? And there, there are lots of examples of how we simplify the process of walking through doorways or interacting with other people. You know, I think one heuristic that we use all the time and it's unappreciated and we use it for the purpose of causal reasoning when the reasoning is too hard or takes too much effort is what these days I've been calling the outsourcing heuristic. That is, we outsource a lot of the causal reasoning we have to do. So, you know, we, we have our plumber, we outsource the problem of understanding our toilet to our plumber. And we understand, we outsource the problem of understanding our car to our mechanic. And we outsource the problem of understanding uh, medical policies to our political party, right? Um, kids outsource the problem of understanding what's right and wrong to their parents. Well, some of them do anyway. Um, so, you know, I think a really important heuristic for causal reasoning is sort of avoiding the problem and giving the problem to the person that you consider an expert, which is actually not a bad heuristic, right? In the case of toilets, it's certainly the right thing for me to do. <laughs> so t talk to me about um, all of this stuff and technology, especially maybe the whole idea of the, the communities and technology, or maybe not communities, maybe just, um, you know, our, our relationship moving forward with you know ai and machine learning and and using technology to be part of our uh community of knowledge and in under two sentences <laughs> okay. yeah just a little small you, you've topic already discovered though that i'm not capable of that <laughs> um well, let, let me just riff for a moment on what I was saying a moment ago, and then, and then Phil can jump in. But, uh, you know, the, so with regard to outsourcing, who, who do we give our problems to? Um, the answer more and more is to technology, right? We, we let Netflix decide what uh, movie we're going to watch. Um, we let navigation tools tell us which direction we should go in and as a result sometimes we end up driving into lakes right there, there are whole web pages about that um so we use technology more and more in order to reason causally for us and um there's a there's a big question about you know 
whether people are willing to do that and whether people should be willing to do that. So we're going to see that with the vaccine, for instance, right? The, va the, the COVID vaccine that is that just started being administered this week to the general public um, is a technological development. And we don't know yet whether to trust it or not. I mean, I most of us do. I do. I do by virtue of the fact that, you know, Dr. Fauci claims that it's safe and I trust Dr. Fauci. Um, but there is sort of this leap of faith that we have to make. And I think actually the data show that we're more and more willing to make it. Yeah. Phil, you have anything you want to add to that? Um, yeah, I think, you know, technology is, as you say, it's uh, sort of an extension of, of our thinking. It's sort of becoming more and more a part of our community of knowledge. Um, and we, we have seen some of the same kind of effects that we talked about um, earlier with technology. So for instance, I'm working on a project with a guy named Adrian Ward, who uh, in his dissertation work showed that just the, um, the act of searching Google for information makes us feel really smart. And that's kind of similar to the effects we talked about earlier with the knowledge illusion by virtue of participating in a, commu in a community of knowledge, we feel like we know more than we do. And um, that, that seems to happen with technology. And so um, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. It's potentially concerning as well, because as we go and we outsource more and more of our knowledge uh, to uh, the internet, um, just by virtue of doing of, 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 of participating in that relationship, we can feel like we know a lot more than we do. Do you think we just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let me say one, one more thing. There's one other dimension to this, which is um, that, you know, while it's true that to a large extent, um, technology has become part of our community and we're outsourcing to it and that kind of thing. The, the other fact is that technology is not human and our, when we talk about a community of knowledge, the first thing that comes to people's minds is, other human beings, right? Like my community um, doesn't include my laptop that's sitting in front of me. It includes my family and my friends and my neighborhood and other human beings. And it's remarkable the extent to which we use technology just as a means to connect to other human beings, right? I mean, we're caught, you and I, we're, we're the four of us are doing that right now. and. And in fact, we're doing that with all the listeners of this podcast. We're using technology to connect because we need other human beings, right? We're part and parcel of the same cognitive process, the same emotional process. And we're, sort of, we're all in it together at the very deepest level. Yeah, yeah so that, adding, yeah, go ahead, adding, Phil. Adding to that, um, this is one thing that technology is completely enabling is the, is the ability for um, communities to um, to uh, uh, to be created around ideas, uh, around shared ideas, in a way that's sort of smoother and more powerful than than ever before. Um, one example that um, I thought was really interesting was um, I went and visited the uh, the Flat Earth Society uh, conference about a year ago, um, and this is a, a group of people who 
are aligned around the idea that the Earth is flat. Um, you, most of your listeners are probably familiar with the idea a little bit. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, it's a great example of people kind of being able to believe uh, just about anything. Um, but what I found pretty remarkable about it is how um, technology has enabled that community to become stronger and more powerful and larger. Um, uh, so if you go back to the 1970s, there were a few people um, who were interested in this idea. Um, and the way they would have to communicate was via snail mail. You know, they'd send each other ideas and papers in the mail. They'd talk on the phone. Occasionally, they would have a conference and a few people would show up. Um, and then all of a sudden, with the advent of uh, social media and the internet and so on, you can get thousands and, th and thousands of people involved and all sort of coalesced around this idea um, in a much richer and more powerful way. So, um, of course, this has positive and negative consequences, but technology is really allowing these human dynamics of knowledge sharing and community building to really accelerate in an amazing way. Yeah, initially when I when I asked the question about technology, I, I was wondering if people, if you thought people made a distinction between, you know, uh, the the community of knowledge, right? There's there's this knowledge, and it's you know people I know or even strangers, but you know there's this community of knowledge about a topic, and is there a distinction between knowledge that comes from other people versus knowledge that comes from you know technology like what what but but i think what you're saying is well the two are really intertwined it reminds me of um some research i read about uh about how people's uh they would in this research the researchers took two people together that didn't know each other, brought them into a room and asked them to have a conversation about various topics. And they would sometimes put a cell phone in the room. It didn't belong to either person. And it wasn't like right there in front of them, but it definitely was in their line of vision. So there's a cell phone on the table and, you know, it, it not in the table in front of them, but in peripheral vision. And they, the question was, did the people have a different, uh, did the conversation go differently and did they rate each other in terms of how, how much rapport they thought they had during these conversations with the other person differently if there was a cell phone in the room versus if there wasn't. And, and they found that if the cell phone was in the room, didn't ring or anything, but was just there, the conversations were different and the ratings were different. And their assumption, I don't know if this is true or not, but the researcher's assumption was that the that cell phones have be, become a stand-in for community. It's like if the cell phone is in the room, there's a whole bunch of other people kind of in the room. Um, and, and just that this whole idea that, you know, we think of social media, we think of our cell phones, we think of the internet as, you know, communities of people. I, I'm not sure I'm convinced by that argument yet or not. What, was this cell phone on? Or? Uh, that's a great question. I might have to go back and read the research again. I think the, this paper you're talking about is actually by the guy I just mentioned, Adrian Ward. Oh, really? 
Yeah, I believe that paper was published funny. in the Journal of Association of Consumer Research. Is that right? I don't know. Now I'm looking yeah, at I'm my bookshelf and I'm bookshelf. thinking I should go uh, look it up here. Yeah. I may have to check that. I mean, Phil, you're talking, I know Adrian did work where he compared um, how distracted people were when they left their own cell phone outside a room versus it was beside them um, right. versus, uh, and, and they could see it versus they couldn't see it. And, and the more they were aware of it, essentially, and the more access they had to it, the more distracted they were. I remember right. that result. Yeah. Right. And, and that's plausible, right? But in that case, it's because the cell phone is a conduit to, to another person. Right. 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 So, All right. Tell me what, you know, what are you guys working on now? Have you continued with the work from when you wrote the book? I think it's a, probably a lot more flat earth uh, gatherings. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. We're, we're, we're purveyors of the flat earth. Phil, people. did they convince you? The flat earth people? No, I was already convinced. That's why I went to Oh, them. okay. <laughs> I think you can tell them you're joking, Phil. <laughs> I think their uh, their listeners are probably smart enough to figure that one out. Yeah. Um, yeah. One, one topic that um, is top of mind right now, because actually Steve and I are uh, working on a paper that we're about to uh, submit to a journal. Um, I've been interested for a while in um, speaking of flat earth, scientific controversies. So controversies around uh, scientific issues where there's uh, more or less a, a, a scientific consensus, but people disagree uh, with the consensus. So things like uh, genetically modified foods was one of my favorite topics to work on. Um, other areas like um, uh, climate change and so on. And uh, so I, I've been doing a lot of work in that area, trying to understand uh, why people have those strong anti-consensus views. And one of the things that we found in that research is very consistent with uh, the research in the knowledge illusion. Um, and what we basically find is that people who more have stronger anti-consensus views both uh, don't know very much about the science. So they have low objective knowledge, uh, but they have high subjective knowledge. So they feel like they understand things pretty well. Um, and that disconnect might explain um, uh, in part why they have the, that counter uh, scientific consensus view. We actually um, have just been uh, doing some studies with uh, COVID uh, both um, looking at whether people are open to being vaccinated. And Steve has um, a study with some colleagues looking at mitigation policies like whether you should wear a mask and uh, whether you should uh, socially distance and so on. And we find the same kind of effects there. So the people who are most opposed to those things um, have the lowest levels of actual knowledge about them, uh, but the highest levels of subjective knowledge. And we think this might be uh, might be kind of important in terms of understanding uh, uh, these these controversies. And there's a lot of them. The whole, yes. uh, all the food, all the food stuff. Yeah. Every, where, you know, this diet will kill you. This other diet will kill you. Totally. Yeah, um, it's just like uh, everything we talked about, like zippers and toilets. You know, people just don't know very much about about these things, and that's especially true of uh, of, of science. You know, scientific issues. They they tend to be really complicated. 
Um, and uh, and so uh, individuals don't understand them very well. And yet we tend to have very strong opinions about them. So that's that's what sort of initially spurred my interest in this, which is uh, wh- why, you know, why do people have such strong opinions about these things despite not knowing very much about them? Hmm. Right. I- yeah, so, so that, that question, precisely that question, is what's been motivating me for the past uh, few years, ever ever since we wrote the book, actually. You know, the, the, the hard part about being a scientist is that you're invariably having to focus on work that you did years ago, because when it finally comes to print and you have to respond to viewers' comments and rewrite the paper, it's old. You're no longer interested in it. <laughs> That, that's the hard thing about being a scientist. So since uh, I have the opportunity, let me tell you what I'm thinking about now, because this is what's exciting me, even though I don't actually have any real data on it. Um, so, you know, I'll just uh, show my, my true colors. What um, is motivating me more than anything right now is watching the Republican Party. I mean, I, is it is, is it okay if I talk politics for a moment? Sure, you do what you yeah. want. Yeah, we hey, we invited you on the podcast. It's your what's the phrase? Soapbox. Yeah, I already admitted to being a flat earther, so you're you're good. Yeah. <laughs> so I can admit to being a Democrat. Um, look, I Trump's refusal to concede the election. And the fact that like 120 Congress people stood behind him and went to the Supreme Court last week just blows my mind, right? 77% of Republicans don't believe it was a free and fair election. I mean, there's zero evidence, zero evidence. And, they, and, and the reason they believe it is just because Trump keeps saying it. He says it, and he says it, and he says it, and that seems to be enough, right? So this completely blows my mind, and it strikes me as the most powerful example of um, of social belief, of believing something out of complete ignorance merely because the people around you believe it. And And so what I am you know, overwhelmed by is this need to sort of figure out whether there's anything we can do about it. I mean, anything legal and, uh, you know, just uh, and fair-minded that we can do about it. How can you get people to, to appreciate the value of evidence and to use the value of evidence in their own um, in their own reasoning and coming to their own political conclusions. And if anybody out there has any ideas about how to do it, then, you know, I, I would love to hear them. And uh, I would do everything I could to share them with the people that matter. Because it strikes me that this is the most pressing problem of the day. So, so one part, just to throw out an idea, uh, what, what, Phil and I following um, Frank Kyle and his students showed is that asking people to explain things um, reduces the extremity of their beliefs, right? So it, it both punctures their sense of understanding, but it also punctures their confidence that they're right. And it 
basically depolarizes a community by reducing extremism. So how can this be applied to these very large scale kind of phenomena like uh, the, the rejection of the election results? And it's, it's not obvious at all, but I did come across a paper recently that showed that having people explain something and realizing they don't understand it can give them more faith in experts, right? It opens their mind in the sense of making them appreciate the value of experts more. So if there's some way to sort of scale this observation up and get people to appreciate the value of expertise, that could be a huge win for, us, for our society. Maybe it'll even save us. But, you know, there are... People really enjoy taking sides on stuff. Uh, and they, they, they're reinforced by these. And they do it for fun. So, for example, what's the best fill-in-the-blank sports team? If you grow up in the Boston area, you'll have strong opinions about this. And you can pair it, the evidence that you've heard from years and years and years of talk show radio talking about why you know, Bill Russell's the best because of X and Y, and you can use these arguments. Um, but yeah, you actually might not Bill actually know. It's not Bill Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Bob Cousy or whatever. Um, so the, the, I remember there's a, there's a subreddit I like to do, and it was it's cat teams versus bird teams. So one group was just fan of cat teams. So like the Panthers and the Lions and the Bengals. And the other was f the bird teams. So it was like the Blue Jays and the Cardinals. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and bitter rivals. And they, would, they, they had so much fun just spending hours of their time complaining and, and arguing over whether the bird team was and better. And coming up with evidence. Oh, sure, right? sure. Um, so it seems to be something that we just really like to do. Like mm -hmm. there, is, there is a level of enjoyment in mm -hmm. joining in with these, I don't know, cru causes, crusades. Joining in with one faction versus another. Uh, that... Um, you know, and, and just like uh, in many things in our society, if it's something that humans enjoy doing, it seems to be very hard, even if it's bad for them, very hard to break out of that behavior. I, okay, so I see. So I, at first I, w I understood you to be saying that... Um, it it's just a game to most people that I'm people well i'm sure they don't feel like it's a game but it's sort of there it's tapping in when when we're talking about sports teams it's sort of fun and it's tapping into that in a fun way uh much like an adrenaline junkie goes to goes on a roller coaster and sort of tapping into that thing but sort of in in a fun way um, and this is tapping into the same thing uh, in, I would call it maybe an engaging way. I don't know if I'd call it fun. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little more than engaging, right? Like, it affects people's lives, and it leads to people being imprisoned, and it leads to riots, and in other countries it has led to war. Yeah. So, you know, I watch, so I, I mean, I agree with you completely about sports. I watch way too much football, and, and when my wife complains to me about it, my my feeling is, you know, it's a great diversion, right? It's the way I take this need I have to affiliate and to be part of a larger movement um, and apply it to something that just doesn't matter. Much better than applying it to something which could harm other people, right? I mean, I suppose I could be spending my time applying it to helping other people, but at least I'm not applying it to harming other people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that it's, it's a sign of the kind of tribalism that is fundamental to us. So, right, we can't do anything about that. But presumably, I mean, like, are, are you saying that if you had a group of people who, like the Flat Earth Society, you, um, you don't think there's any way to get them to appreciate the world is round, right? Or, or, or think about COVID. So you have a group of people who don't believe in mask wearing and don't believe in social distancing and think the whole thing is a hoax and the number of deaths is, is being overreported. Like it seems to me important to get the facts right. And if you don't, well, people are gonna die. So is your proposal that there's simply nothing you can do? I think it's maybe it's like there's this itch to be on a side of an issue. And you can maybe change what issues people are feeling very passionate about. So maybe instead of COVID, it's the Patriots or, or religion or the school board or something else going on in their life and you can maybe change which thing which team they're all riled up about but uh there's just this need to feel part of a team to feel like you're fighting against uh some sort of other and maybe in our modern society where there's just less immediate dangers, uh, less uh, divisiveness as we become a more sort of global culture and more secular or whatever. Uh, we're, we're trying to find other things to really, really, really grab onto. We're trying to increase the divisiveness. Well, we're trying to in, 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 uh, increase our engagement in, 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 in something. It, yeah. So maybe you can't get the flare out of to stop. You'd have to get them onto... Uh, something less... Uh, just something that doesn't cause harm. Yeah, but it would be a something. But you have to get them to switch to something. Everything is being used as a wedge these days, for sure. And that's purposeful on the part of some uh, people in power. Um, and I think what you guys are saying is, is, is deeply correct. Like, it's very natural for us to sort of choose a side. And then we get, you know, we get, we get utility out of advocating for that side and supporting that side. But uh, a lot of these issues, reality is there's not really, it's not really like two teams fighting it out. 
you know? And I think maybe getting people to appreciate that actually, um, like we all have, uh, uh, there's a benefit to everybody if we can mitigate the spread of COVID, for instance. And so um, like whether you should wear a mask or something like that might not be an issue of my team versus the other team if you change your perspective around the way you see it. Now, of course, um, it's not so simple as like, you know, do X and COVID goes away, do Y and it sticks around. But of course, it's a, it's a complicated question of cost and benefits things like, you know, how much do we shut down the economy and uh, and what are the impacts on the economic activity versus how much do we mitigate the disease and so on. So these things are really complicated, but perhaps getting people to see, see it in that more nuanced way as not really a battle between my team and the other team, but actually both teams kind of want the same outcomes might be really important. Yeah. Well, I'll be curious, Steve, to see where where you end up with this. So like five years from now when the journal article finally comes out, right? And then you won't want to talk about it anymore. That's right. All right. No, but, yeah, this go ahead. This will always be a hot issue. Yeah. All right. So tell uh, our listeners where, it, if you want any of them to get a hold of you after you've now uh, stated these five, five, five. <laughs> five, 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 five. Uh, if people want to get hold of you and you're willing to have them get hold of you what's the best way to reach you I think they should send you an email <laughs> and, <laughs> and forward uh, the interesting what the ones that are ripping me apart to me so they can um, send me an email at uh, Stephen underscore Sloman at bram.edu okay and Phil? I've got a web page, uh, philipfernback.com, where they can uh, find information uh, okay. about us. Hey, guys, I really want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, fascinating conversation. And, um, and I do uh, want to recommend to uh, people listening to check out the book, The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And we'll, you know, post all this uh, on our podcast episode notes. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. This all was right. a lot of fun. Appreciate it.